Hello everyone, I hope you are well. I'm Carlos Carnicero Uravalle and I want to welcome you all to Future is Blue, a series of podcasts bringing together top experts from academia and think tanks to discuss the most pressing European economic and policy challenges of today. This is a Funkas Europe initiative and we hope we can bring new ideas for a more inspiring debate about Europe. Today we're joined by Alicia Garcia Herrero, who's Chief Economist for Asia-Pacific at Natixis, a French multinational financial services firm and Senior Fellow at Bruegel Think Tank. Thank you very much for joining us, Alicia. It's my great pleasure. And also, uh, you may recognize a regular voice in this program. Let me uh, welcome Raymond Torres, Funkas Europe Director. Hello, Raymond. Hello, Carlos. A pleasure to join in as well. All right. Alicia, perhaps we can start if you could give us an, an overview of China's current debt situation and what factors have contributed to the rapid growth of Chinese debt in recent years. Sure. Uh, well, China's debt started to increase um, drastically, I would say, in 2008. And the main contributor at the time was um, public debt. But the fact was that it was not really visible. And it wasn't visible because rather than having a central government-led fiscal stimulus as a response to the global financial crisis, Wen Jiabao, the Prime Minister at the time, decided to that he didn't want to go down on history as you know the Prime Minister that had massively increased China's debt, and therefore kind of engineered an off-balance sheet, shadow banking type uh, increase in debt, which basically consisted on local governments funding their infrastructure and real estate projects through shadow instruments, for example, wealth management products that, you know, banks would mm, hold off balance sheet and, and sell to their clients who would then finance uh, this expansion of that. Since then, uh, we also had a massive expansion in corporate debt right after because Chinese companies grew enormously. Now we have more Fortune 500, 150 to be precise, uh, massive Chinese companies in the Fortune 500 more than the US. And all of that was basically um, leveraged. And thereafter, because of the real estate uh, boom, households had to leverage as well. And we have household debt at around 60% of GDP, which is not as high as, say, Australia or the UK. But however, for a country of $12,000 per capita, it's pretty, pretty high. So overall, we've moved from around 50% overall, even less, uh 40 50 of gdp in debt to 300 of gdp in total debt are are the are policymakers in beijing concerned about the risks of this uh debt and what are they doing uh to to mitigate this uh this 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 uh, growing public debt um so just to clarify so 300 of gdp is total debt out of which uh, public debt is Uh, around 100, but this is not the official figure. I'm obviously including here all of the off-balance sheet uh, funding of local governments. So, if, so are they conscious of this 100%? Well, first of all, because the data doesn't really show that 100%. I wouldn't say they're not conscious, but they can hide behind the scenes because 
official public debt in China is below 50. So, you know, you, you can sense that there is a kind of a little bit of denial of the situation. However, uh, Xi Jinping himself, or at least that's what people uh, uh, say, um, I, I, I don't mean to say he wrote this anonymous letter, but it's a very, very famous uh, event in 2017, early 2017, there was an anonymous letter sent to the China Daily. And people argue this was Xi Jinping's voice, directly or indirectly, asking to deleverage that China could not continue to pile up debt. And yes, indeed, Xi Jinping himself this time around um, uh, announced the creation of a deleverage commission, which he would head in 2017, second half of 2017. So yes, I would argue, yes, Xi Jinping is fully aware, he's worried about excessive leverage, he's tried hard, including the crackdown on the real estate sector, which was extremely leveraged, he's tried hard to reduce that. However, things are not, are easier said than done. Absolutely. So this has been going on for some years, and and the problem is not getting better. It seems. And I was wondering, what's the impact of this uh, debt situation? How is it impacting the domestic, the Chinese domestic economy? Okay. So debt is, on the one hand, what is oiling the economy, meaning without debt, China's growth would be much lower. Let's face it. But at the same time, because it's creating a lot of misallocation of resources, obviously, especially because at this time around, and I'm talking since 2018, it is public debt that is growing. And by the way, I'm not even adding state-owned enterprises debt. If I were to add that, and it's very hard to make the calculations, but we would be certainly around 100 from 150 to 180% of GDP, i.e. China would have the largest public debt on earth, I mean, except Japan. So, but is it hampering the economy? Yes, because the return on assets is increasingly low. And this is because this debt is funding projects that are not necessarily the most profitable. Therefore, yes, it is hampering long-term growth in China. Thank you, uh, Alithia. You, you said a lot in, in just a few minutes, and I, I wanted to ask Raymond, uh, looking from, from a European perspective, uh, to what extent is the China debt problem similar to what we saw in, in the European Union a few years ago? Raymond, any reflections on that? There are similarities uh, between the picture which has been portrayed by uh, Alithia and, and what we saw in Europe some years ago. Um, the, uh, in terms of uh, private debt as, as officially measured, we are today in China as a situation very close to where we were in, the, in some European countries a few years ago. The official figures suggest 200% private debt to GDP ratio, which is about the same as Europe a few years ago. Uh, given Alicia comments, some of this private debt is probably public, uh, but yet it's very, very high. Uh, in terms of public debt, um, the, the figures are, are lower, but of course, if we, if we were to include the shadow debt, if you wish, it, it would also be higher. So we, we're talking about uh, a situation today in China which is close, is similar to what we saw some years ago in terms of volume of debt. Uh, also, another similarity is that uh, there, there was a housing, a real estate bubble in Europe, in some European countries, whether the UK, uh, whether Spain, uh, for example, uh, 
some years ago, and it's it of, course, of course the case also in China. However, there is one, one, at least one very, very big difference, which is that much of the debt uh, which uh, Alicia has described is very much internal debt. So in other words, it's, it's internal creditors and debtors which are involved, whereas in the case of Europe, there was a lot of external debt. It this made countries from Greece to Spain to Ireland and so on vulnerable, much more vulnerable than is the case today in China because of the main internal debt situation in the case of China, whereas in Europe it was much worse because of the vulnerability, the external vulnerability. And another difference is that the, uh, in a way the, uh, China has uh, also some external reserves, very considerable external uh, investment position, uh, external reserves, uh, which was not the case in some European countries. So I would say that overall, probably the internal problem for China is about the same as uh, was the case in Europe some years ago. However, the, ex the external ramifications, the external implications are probably less. Um, thank you, Raymond. Uh, so based on what we, we learned from uh, Europe and Considering the size of the, 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 the China economy, Alicia, probably our audience is guessing, is asking themselves, what's the risk of this bubble bursting and having implications for beyond China for the global economy? Any, any thoughts on that? Well, to be frank, lots has been written on whether Evergrande at the time, we're talking June 2021, would be the new Lehman. And, you know, since then I, I've been arguing that no way that Evergrande will be Lehman for a number of reasons. First, it's not a financial institution. So basically the interconnectivity, the, you know, the systemic uh, nature of a, of a developer which has 99% of its projects in China is not comparable with a global financial institution. Um, and even if Evergrande, ever and now we have, of course, Country Garden, uh, both the large, both of them largest uh, developers in China, also in trouble, but still Evergrande was like 20 billion in, in dollar debt, uh, around 400 billion overall, I mean, total liabilities, but most of them in China, except for 20 billion. 20 billion might look big, but the reality is that it was well absorbed because these were only high yield investors. It was not really a systemic, even you know, a name in in the portfolios of major asset managers. So all of this to say that I actually don't think this is systemic financially. However, because the real estate sector is very similar to Spain at the time, about a third of growth, a third of fixed asset investment, this is bringing down China's growth and thereby. China's demand from the rest of the world. And that's why we see imports uh, into China, so Chinese imports, basically growing at a negative rate for the last four years, uh, sorry, for the last four months, and even in 2022 for quite a few months. And that's the problem. It's more about growth than financial instability. Thank you, Alicia. Any reactions, uh, Raymond, on the spillover effects and the implications uh, this would, would have? Yes, I, I completely agree with Alicia that, that uh, it's, it's not, uh, let's say, uh, financially systemic, this kind of uh, debt crisis of China, but it has very important uh, implications on the real economy through the, uh, uh, you know, through the uh, uh, international trade linkages, 
uh, I mean, both the, from the point of view of the internal uh, Chinese market is going to grow probably much less than was the case a few years ago. So it's going to be much more difficult for, let's say, European or other enterprises uh, wanted to sell their products in, in China. But also from the point of view probably of the uh, Chinese strategy, export strategy is going to, it, it was always pretty, let's say, aggressive, you know, pursuing, um, you know, improving market shares, especially in high tech and so on. It's probably going to be even more the case now, uh, given the, the weaknesses of the Chinese internal market. And probably Chinese government will want to compensate part of that through a big export push. We see that in terms of the external deficit of the EU vis-à-vis -vis China, it has increased quite considerably over the past 18 months. And it's probably a reflection of that, that situation. So thank you both. It was great having you both uh, with us at the Future is Blue podcast, Alicia Garcia-Herrero, who's, let me remind everyone who's, uh, Alicia is Chief Economist for Asia Pacific at Natixis and Senior Fellow at Bruegel. Thank you, Alicia. Thank you so much. And Raymond Torres, Funkas Europe Director. Thanks a lot, Raymond. Thank you. Thank you all for joining. This was all for now. We will come back soon with more exciting speakers on Europe's economic and policy-related key debates. Future is Blue is a Funcas Europe initiative. I'm Carlos Carnicero Ravallen, and if you enjoyed this podcast, feel free to recommend it to others and share it on social media. Thank you all, and stay well.